You're listening to Through the Darkness, a show about the search for the sacred in the mundane and profane of ordinary life. I'm Chris Gurria. All around the world today, folks within the Christian tradition gather, albeit virtually, to observe Ash Wednesday, a day marking the beginning of Lent, the reflective 40-day period leading up to Easter. Many observers will make some sort of offering, physical or symbolic, to mark their participation in this waiting period. So in this space, I offer you my newest essay called On Loss, part three of the series On Becoming Human, which you can find on our website. I hope you enjoy. How do we begin talking about loss? Let me start by telling you about my friend, Alf. At the previous church where I worked, I would attend a weekly men's small group on Wednesdays, often starting before sunrise. Although a large percentage of church members were seniors, this group advertised itself for all ages. But as was often the case, I went into my first meeting assuming I would be the youngest person there. And so it was. I stumbled in on my first Wednesday morning several minutes late to find a room full of men who were at least 40 years my senior. They stared like I assume I was staring at them, somewhat puzzled. It felt like a standoff. One of the men chuckled, breaking the silence, asking if I was in the right place. I'm here for the men's group, I sheepishly replied. I was new to my job then, sporting long hair and a beard. This man looked at me, this sleep-deprived hippie who stood in the doorway trying to find his place in the world, and exclaimed after sipping his steaming coffee, You've come to the right place. He pulled out an empty chair alongside him and invited me to sit. His name was Alf. Alf was quiet but full of wisdom and held a noticeable presence in the room. On many occasions, as we discussed around the table, he would solicit my opinion, the young person's perspective, he would say. I want to hear what Chris thinks. And I would speak on behalf of myself and the young people involved in our student ministries. He always wanted to hear our thoughts. As we wrapped up each week and meandered our way out the church's side exit, Al frequently pulled me aside to ask how I was doing. Every time he did... He thanked me profusely for my work. This men's group took a peculiar liking to me, and the oldest members of my church became some of my closest supporters. Alf and his wife attended our student ministry's annual get-together with the retiree group. Even as I read now, I can picture them laughing at one of the dinner tables as they played games with our high schoolers. One particular Wednesday morning, our men's group surprised Alf by celebrating his 90th birthday with him. Alf was the oldest member of our church. Since he spent much of that year in the hospital, we wanted to mark this incredible milestone together. So we each wrote him birthday cards and chipped in to get his favorite flavored cake. And our surprise floored him. I've lived long enough to be grateful for every day I have left. Alf mused with gratitude and even a quiver in his voice. He was my friend, even if more than 60 years stood between us. And I knew I was his friend, too. I recently found out that Alf passed away from COVID-19. On the one hand, he always exuded such peace about death. 
but remembering him as one of many who lost their lives during this pandemic only accentuates the eeriness of a season marred with loss. It feels complicated. In my case, I am far away from that first time I met Alf, yet losing him feels at once so near and so unresolved, like a past life come and gone. His death just happened, completely out of my control, without any sense of closure. For that matter, it's so strange to me that we happen to use the same word to describe misplacing car keys, getting defeated in games, politicians earning more votes than their opponents, and moments like these of grieving our loved ones come and gone. The word is loss. And in this season, we have encountered loss, ordinary and profound, unlike ever before. Collectively, we have lost livelihoods, loved ones, relationships, our sense of self, one after another, to the point where it feels like there is no space between the shit anymore. Loss has exhausted us. And how great the pain of searing loss. These words from a modern hymn have never rung truer for me than they do now. We could spend lifetimes counting our losses and still never fully comprehend the profound cumulative impact they will have on us. Indeed, this fractured moment in history will ripple throughout our lifetimes for generations to come. Amidst such division and polarity, loss, strangely, has become something we all share in common. As one of my friends recently described, our connection from this season is that it sucks for all of us. I wonder if we have not yet taken the time to fully feel our losses because of how much they have accumulated. Maybe you feel a certain unease, a dis-ease from the tension of this season that has left you entangled. You feel it in your body, all the way down to your bones. You feel more agitated or easily provoked than usual. Your thoughts feel foggy, breaths shallow, fleeting, and uncertain. You hit that wall over and over again and wonder to yourself if you will ever hold it all together. Indeed, it can be challenging to carve out space to talk about, let alone experience loss. It brings up so much that it is hard to know where to begin or what to do with it. Moreover, it is so hard to lose, especially when you feel like you've already lost so much, like you just can't stop the bleeding no matter how hard you try. I actually want to begin talking about loss by focusing on our experience of loss more than exploring it abstractly or just as a concept. Knowing how we lose will be helpful in our process of coping with losses that we currently face and those that have not yet come to pass. In fact, how we lose shows us a path towards how we may heal. Loss, a labyrinth. Understanding how our emotions work more generally may help us take the first step of wading through the muddiness of loss. So let's start with the basics. Emotions are a combination of energy, bodily sensation, and fiction story. They're what we feel in our bodies merged with the accumulated stories we tell ourselves about our circumstances. Emotions start with events within particular contexts, which we can call triggers. What someone said, what you did, your experience of the world, you name it. Triggers happen all the time, all around us, in more ways than we are often aware of. They meet us not just in the present moment, 
but in conjunction with the interconnected moments of beauty and pain of our past and hope and worry for our future. These stories shape our worldview, the scripts we've inherited and co-written about how we see our reality. In response to triggers, we feel emotions first as bodily sensations, which is still one of the great mysteries of neuroscience. There's little data about how emotions actually translate from sensations into felt experiences. The phenomenon is quite miraculous. But what we feel informs how we will react to forces stirring up in our interior and exterior worlds. These moments act as responsive crossroads, the decisions dependent on our desires to address whatever we feel coming up for us, consciously, subconsciously, and even unconsciously. Eventually, we will take action with or against our emotional experiences as they unfold. Whatever our response, our reactions often happen quicker than it takes for our rational minds to come fully online. You've seen this before. When you say the thing you probably shouldn't have said in a moment filled with rage, despair, or any other intense emotion. In these moments, we fill in the blanks with whatever information we have to tell ourselves about what exactly is taking place. Obviously, some of our responses are more constructive than others and even form the triggers for the next rollout of experienced emotions. So our feelings are not isolated. They're muddy complex and cascading. We form our days with chain links of emotions that take time and perspective to more fully understand. Hindsight, after all, is 2020. Now, keeping in mind this very general overview of how emotions work, we would do well to simply bring awareness to whatever we feel stirring up in us now by pausing, breathing, and naming what we notice. Hopefully, beginning with that gentleness and intentionality will help us clarify our goals for how we want to respond. According to doctors Paul and Eve Ekman, we experience variants of the same core emotions all the time. Sadness, disgust, fear, anger, and joy. Sound familiar? The minds behind Disney's Inside Out got it right after all. I find it helpful to think of these emotions as baselines that represent spectrums of our emotional states. We cycle through them at varying speeds with various degrees of intensity all the time. So our experiences of loss usually fall somewhere within sadness. Loss is how we express grief, what we say or do or even where to commemorate what's missing in our lives. But loss sometimes stirs us to fixate on who or what we have lost which can also resemble fear. Have you ever found yourself not wanting to let go? That's loss too. What about when your losses frustrate you? That's loss in the form of anger. You may begin to see how complicated it all is. Our emotional experiences are hard to pinpoint because they are unique to us and our respective contexts. Nobody can ever know exactly what it is like to be you, to feel what you have felt, to lose what you have lost. Complex emotions felt by complicated human beings do not cleanly fit into methods of understanding. I think complicatedness is a beautiful part of our humanity. So loss can be anguish, anxiety, confusion, yearning, apprehension, grief, rage, or sorrow, perhaps all at once. Intense loss often triggers bodily distress, disrupting our immune systems and our mental health along the way. 
Loss can feel hollow, unending, vacuous, haunting, even life-threatening. In her book, Why Religion? A Personal Story, Elaine Pagels describes losing her son and her husband with a tragic scrupulosity. When the death of our young child, followed soon after by the shocking death of my husband, shattered my life, those losses left a crater that loomed as large as the Grand Canyon, which I could not enter and in which I could hardly see anything, like a black hole in space. I can only tell a husk of the story, a story known inwardly only by those who have experienced such a loss, which we'd wish for no one else to suffer. Those who have not often say, I can't imagine how you felt, what that was like. And recently when someone said that, I found myself answering, like being burned alive. I think all we can do is find the least inadequate language to encapsulate our often indescribable experiences of loss. In the moments when all sense of logic and order fall away, all that makes sense is metaphor. Loss is a canyon, a black hole, burning alive. To me, loss feels like a labyrinth. It scars our souls and psyches and leaves us forever wandering down the windy, weary path of uncertainty. You can't explain it, but you know what it feels like when you've gone through it. So how do we express loss? How do we properly grieve? How do we begin to heal? Grief. A morning. First, I propose we mourn and show compassion towards others in whatever ways mourning feels most resonant. Maybe mourning looks like weeping and gnashing of teeth. Folks in the ancient Jewish tradition practice kriah, a Hebrew word that means tearing. At the loss of loved ones, people literally ripped off their clothes. That's how torn apart they were. Then, they kept wearing these torn garments to commemorate their loss for 7 to 30 days later. Sentiments of rugged individualism, getting over it, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, do not mesh well with these painstaking expressions of grief. Members of collectivist societies acknowledge their interdependence. One person's loss affects everyone. So grieve together. Break open for one another's sake. Ideals programs, abstracts, they all get torn away in the face of great love amidst great suffering. In our current circumstances, mourning can also feel strange because typical tragedies allow those unaffected to help those most affected. But this pandemic has subverted those expectations, affecting everyone to various degrees. It is daunting to think about mourning when we are already so isolated and consumed with our survival. For some, Creative ventures help balm and more fully express mourning. Helpers and healers thrive with every opportunity to invite people into safe spaces they foster to distill grief. Artists create contexts to sift through feelings, especially loss. Think about it. Has music ever gotten you through the loss of a loved one or relationship? Has anyone ever offered you food or a homemade craft in your moments of despair? Perhaps you are an artist. In what ways can you attend to the present moment by creating as a means of coping with whatever life throws your way? Can you write or speak or dance or paint or bake or knit to excavate your inner landscape amidst moments of rupture? 
I know that I would internally combust if I didn't create as part of my grieving process. Artistry is my lifeline, and I hope that what I make also provides people with space and soft landings to more fully experience the mess of their lives. For others, mourning is an act of resistance. Judith Butler describes learning to mourn as marking the loss of someone whose name you do not know, whose language you may not speak, who lives at an unabridgable distance from where you live. Public displays of loss require us to look in the mirror to interrogate the conditions and social structures that set up the opportunities for such unimaginable losses in the first place. I do not advocate for resistance, meaning riots, destruction, violence, or insurrection. Extending compassion to anyone in mourning is of dire importance, and we should seek to avoid harm where and when we can. Rioting, destruction, violence, and insurrection manifest as last resort measures people take when they feel desperately frustrated, unheard, and enraged that their institutions have failed them. It's uncomfortable, terrible, terrifying, and should make us pay attention. Again, I want to be clear. I do not think harming others or causing destruction is the most constructive expression of mourning. But public mourning, in the form of protest, necessarily calls out systems that generate and perpetuate suffering. The systemic inequalities of our time must be brought to the attention of the public eye and dismantled to ensure a more equitable future for everyone. Every life lost is grievous, equal in value, and thus deserves our recognition. Every loss is incalculable. In this season, so many of us mourn with various degrees of ambiguity. We feel the strongest sting from the empty chairs at our dinner tables, or the absence of small group members who passed away, or getting evicted from our homes, or let go from our jobs with no promise of return, or barely scrounging up enough to make ends meet, or suffering within systems that bend towards those who hold power. These situations prompt unanswerable questions, which makes loss feel so ambiguous. Maybe you, like me, feel more helpless or uncomfortable in your current circumstances than ever before. Nothing feels consistent except irregularity. Any promise of return back to normal life feels shallow. After all, how can we go back to the way things were? And how do we reconcile with where we are knowing that life will never be the same? These questions prompt opportunities to mourn what is missing, and I think we are desperately in need of more spaces to grieve without realizing it. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, denial, frustration, bargaining, depression, acceptance, are not the prescription for how everyone experiences loss, but I find them extremely helpful in the context of our current times and circumstances. This past year, when have you seen people deny reality, express frustration, bargain for different outcomes, or cycle through depression? Are you one of those people? In these times, I surmise that we are cycling through the stages of grief at more voracious speeds than at any other point in our lifetime. This assumption may explain the seemingly dire nature of our present moment, we have not learned how to grieve when there is no space between the shit of our lives anymore. So how we reframe mourning helps us to rethink our identity and our values. Change has to start somewhere. 
or at this rate are repressed or more violent expressions of grief will kill us. In many ways, they already have. Lament, a hope. I wonder if you've ever gone through an experience of lament. It is rather intense, quite tragic, and often filled with anguish. Not the moments you'd like to remember in the highlight reel of your life. They are messy, unresolved, and often leave us tender. But lamenting is a necessary practice that people have committed to since ancient times. Often ritualized, it is the passionate expression of suffering most strongly felt when shared. Communities unite and heal amidst tragedy when they make space to scream about pain, injustice, uncertainty, and hopelessness. When we lament together, the complicated gravity of our particular plights become incredibly palpable. I think standing in solidarity alongside those suffering marks one of the greatest expressions of love we have to offer. When we show up for one another and bring our full selves without pretense, we emit a healing presence that indicates a withness, a mutuality for one another, even when we cannot understand exactly what it means to be someone else. Nor should we, for that matter, because maintaining proper boundaries and differentiating ourselves from others' experiences are vital for our health. Since lament can be messy, lamenting spaces must be kept sacred. At the core of this practice is a willingness to hold someone else, a gateway into profound sorrow enveloped in our deepest fears of ultimate peril. When we connect with someone else's suffering, we also learn how to connect deeper with ourselves. Practicing lament means coming together when it feels like everything else may be coming undone. In the space of holding one another, lament reminds us that we have more in common than we may think. We all know what it feels like to feel alone in our grief. We share in the fact that nobody will ever fully understand our experiences. These lamenting spaces reflect our idiosyncrasies and imaginativity, our coming together when we feel most apart with open hands and raised fists in desperate demand for something greater at work. Lament slows us down and invites us into the present moment because it takes time and relationship to grieve and heal. Especially in times as desperate as these, we need ample opportunities to lament. When we do, we grow in our capacity to hope. Now, I think we can often conflate hope with fleeting optimism, positive mental attitude, self-reliance as perseverance. It'll all get better someday. But in my view, genuine hope offers an alternative. We hope for what we believe in but do not yet have. Hope, in turn, requires lament, the commemoration of who or what remains missing. Hope emerges as we more fully grieve and rage through our pain. One of my most formative experiences of lament comes from a few years ago, while the church where I worked was searching for its next pastor. The search team had gone through a deliberately slow process to eventually find a promising candidate, only to have the person remove their name at the very last minute. I was in the room at the announcement of this candidate's withdrawal. Gasps from the crowd broke the silence. Later that week, the search team regrouped to determine their next steps and invited a few other staff members and me to join them. I asked the team leaders in advance if I could start our meeting with a practice of lament given the news we had just received. Luckily, within the Christian tradition, there is a long, 
rich history of lament that is often forgotten. In the biblical text, there's even a book called Lamentations that is all about collective mourning, grieving, and feeling left behind. Read through the Psalms sometime, and you will find almost a third of them committed to this muddy practice. People gathered to sing and perform texts like Lamentations and Psalms in community. I hear blood-curdling screams and can picture tearing clothes. Not that I envisioned our search team would do the same that night, but after months of anticipation leading to our disappointment, I wanted to carve out space for us to grieve the hope we lost. So we began by riffing off texts like Psalm 102 verses 1 and 2 from the Message Translation. Listen to our prayers. Listen to the pain in our cries. Do not turn your back on us just when we need you so desperately. Pay attention. This is a cry for help and hurry. This can't wait. As we did, I encouraged our group to sit in the discomfort of whatever they noticed coming up for them, to welcome denial, frustration, and sadness as part of our lamenting process. And so it was. Everyone aired their grievances while we sat in that uncomfortable space, the great pain of searing loss until the sun set behind us. Some voices quivered. Tears even streamed down people's faces. It is painful to recall now, and yet so beautiful. When I think back to that night, I am reminded of high school, when my small group came together to comfort each other at losing our friend's older brother, or college, when I sat with one of my students who blamed God for his grandmother's death, or just recently, how I wish I could be with that men's small group one last time to grieve the loss of our dear friend, Alf. Martin Buber describes these moments as deep seeing coming together with all our differences to hold one another and allow others to hold us. Even at our most vulnerable, I am convinced that the only way out of the labyrinth of loss is through it. In our grief, we find ourselves at the crossroad of life's profound graciousness, the grace that sustains us when it starts, the grace that takes us to where it all ends, and the grace that runs like a river all the way through. honor and abundance. After a hellish year together, I began to wonder whether our world was bankrupt of this level of grace. What hope do we have when we've lived through our worst fears, exposed our innermost demons, and exploited our very own to the point of commodifying their dignity, their inherent value, their very breath? There is a lot to grieve and unpack in our world, and there will be for years to come. When I think about our healing path ahead, I wonder if we will ever have the courage it will take to lean in, to process through grief even when it causes us to collapse. For Solace, I found myself coming back to the wise words of a spiritual teacher. To preserve and honor the essence of a thing is to be soulful. What do we grant one another when we choose to meet eye to eye, soul to soul at our most elemental and vulnerable moments? When we show up for one another, what can we restore? What can we fight back? What stones can we roll away? We cannot hide behind our ideals, programs, and abstractions for long after recognizing that many losses have come from our negligence. Ibram X. Kendi describes that the outcome of our practices and ideologies are what we do and thus what we breathe. Our souls, 
are the very essence of ourselves that persist, even when we feel at war with one another, even when we hold very different ideas about who or what we have lost. But at the heart of our collective, cumulative life experience is loss, as elemental to us as our very breath. The Judeo-Christian tradition describes the soul as stemming from this very breath, this very being, how we show up in this very moment. So notice what stirs up for you now. Name it. How can you show up as a loss shows up in your life? Do you regularly grieve and lament with others? Do you listen to grief you cannot fully comprehend? How do you allow loss to move you and move through you with grace into something powerful and restorative? At a soul level, I think we are very tired, weary, and feeling pitted against each other. The healing path forward will require us to recognize and honor what and whom we have lost. We may risk our ideals, programs, and abstractions along the way. We may lose our very sense of who we are, ushering in a new, uncertain era of our undoing. But we may also need this undoing to become everything we already are. So who or what do you want to become? You have everything you need. Lean into loss, and it may help you find your answer, or at least your next question. When I recount all that has transpired in this very weary season of my life, I am reminded of the power that comes with inexplicable experiences of collective suffering. Just recently, cities across the country, in conjunction with our capital, illuminated as a national tribute to remember the lives lost due to COVID-19. I watched the short ceremony at the Lincoln Memorial and found myself in tears by its end. I remembered Alf. I wept for him. I wept for us. I wept for who we can be together. To lament, we must learn to attend to one another. To heal, we must remember with every breath we have in us. To hope, we must honor ourselves, others, and who or what we have lost along the way. May you honor your journey through loss by welcoming all that is and comes with it. May you breathe and keep breathing. May you be and keep being. And may grace and peace bring forth abundant light in your windy, weary, hopeful path ahead. Special thanks to Cotter Coatman, who produced the music for this episode, and Caroline Stir Creative for producing the art that inspired this essay.